0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. I'm your host, David Edward Burke, and joining me today of no relation is Leslie Danks Burke, the president and founder of the Trailblazers PAC, which supports candidates who support clean money. Leslie, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, David.
0: It's it's my pleasure to have you on. And It's, I think you're our first guest who has uh, founded a PAC, which a lot of our listeners may be suspicious of because when they think of PACs, they think of super PACs and big money in politics. But uh, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, there are lots of different types of PACs. Tell us more about the Trailblazers PAC and what you do. You're absolutely right,
1: David, that there is a huge problem with big money in politics and we very ostentatiously established ourselves as a pack. And in fact, put that in our name, we're called Trailblazers Pack. A lot of packs out there are, you know, called some derivation of puppies in love. And it takes a little digging to find out that they are a pack. And part of the reason that we did this is to call people's attention to the way that packs can fly under the radar and that it is possible to choose to do better and so at Trailblazers PAC we invest in candidates for local office who aren't waiting around for legislators to fix the money in politics problem but instead choose to follow a higher standard right now. And our candidates fully disclose all of their money and so do we at Trailblazers PAC. And it's our hope among among other things that come out of this that People who look at our work think to themselves, well, gosh, they're disclosing everything. How come I can't find this information out about all the other PACs out
0: there? So in a sense, it sounds like you're trying to to be a model for the way PACs should conduct business in terms of knowing who is donating to the PAC and knowing who the PAC is donating to, and then supporting candidates who are also in favor of disclosure. So, you know, what are the candidates you're supporting, what are they doing that sets them apart from the typical candidate you might get in a political election?
1: The wonderful thing we've learned is that the things that they are doing that set them apart make them not just honest, but also more powerful candidates. And, you know, I'll I'll run through in a second what it is we ask candidates to do, but it's so much fun for us, David, that this, uh, unilateral disarmament, as it were, you know, our candidates go out there and choose to buy, follow a higher standard. I think the conventional wisdom might be that that would put them at a disadvantage. And in fact, it turns out they're more likely to win their races, which is which is really great and was something we were hoping for when we got started. But what we asked them to do is three things. We asked them to 100% disclose every penny in and every penny out of their campaigns. And that is much more than is required by law. There are many, many loopholes and thresholds that allow candidates to not disclose certain contributions. We ask them to go ahead and do that anyway. Uh, You know, if it means put an extra few lines on your financial filing form when you turn it into the state or to your county or wherever it is in your particular community that is uh, required disclosure, go ahead and disclose everything. The second thing that we ask candidates to do is if they're going to be taking money for their campaigns, which candidates have to, campaigns cost money and, and it's big money in America these days. Uh, if you're going to be taking money into your campaign, take it from the people you're supposed to be accountable to. Take it from your actual voters So in addition to wherever else you may be getting funding for, and and we're agnostic on that, we don't tell candidates to decline any particular funds, but we ask them to unilaterally go out there and get contributions from 1% of the voting households in their district. So if someone's running for uh, mayor of a particular town, and that town has 30,000 voting households in it, maybe it's got 45,000 people, but some of them are married to each other and live in the same household. So it's got 30,000 voting households of any party. We ask them to get 1% of those voting households to put literal investment, literal buy-in into the campaign. And you got to reach a lot more than 1% of the voters in order to win a race. And so this we see as just a a starting point that if you're going to get out there and reach as many voters as you need to win a race, then you should begin by grounding your campaign in funding from the people you're supposed to be accountable to.
0: I think a lot of people may hear the, um, well, 1%, that doesn't sound like very much or it shouldn't be too difficult. But I imagine in reality, it's very difficult to get 1% of voting households to support any candidate's campaign because the truth is, a very low percentage of Americans are supporting any political campaigns at all. So have you found that candidates are challenged or have to really go door to door or what sort of approach works and helps them cross that threshold?
1: You are talking, David, that's exactly the challenge that candidates find and and it's a challenge that we that we put them through very purposefully because like I said, campaigns cost money and sometimes those of us who participate in our, our civic process maybe aren't paying attention to what's going on under the hood, we think of it as free, but it isn't free. Somebody's paying for it. And if you don't know who it is, do you really like that person's motivations? And we're, we're really starting to come to terms with that in America that we, we don't necessarily like the motivations of the very, very small percentage of people who are paying for campaigns. So this broadens the population. Of folks who are invested in candidates for office, and it also makes sure that the candidates themselves are accountable to the right people, to their actual voters. And what we say to candidates, you're right. They, it, it's a hard thing to do to go ask for donations. It's a lot easier to, you know, fill out a form for a particular pack and write down what your position is on various issues and send that off by email and hope that it results in a thousand dollar contribution. It, it takes a lot more work to reach individual people, but the reward is so much greater because when someone donates $5 or $15 to your campaign, and that's someone who can actually vote for you, then, then they own a piece of that campaign and they are invested in our democratic Republic in the way that we expected that citizens would be. What we say to candidates is if you can go ask for someone's vote, that really priceless expression of faith in you as a candidate that, you know, I as a voter, I'm going to trust this candidate enough to vote for this person and trust that they're going to carry my views forward. If you can ask for someone's vote, then you can ask them for a few dollars also. And make sure you put that in context that the money is worth so much less than that priceless vote.
0: Yeah, and in doing the work of getting out in the community, you know, to meet that 1% threshold, candidates are actually doing the work they should be doing of interacting with a large swath of the community and voters. You said that there's the disclosure requirement, there's the 1% threshold. Are there any other requirements you ask that candidates meet? Sure. We
1: ask that they make uh, clean government and transparency a real focal point of their platform. And that can look different in different people's races, but we're not just concerned about campaign finance. We're concerned about honesty in government across the board. And it's it's great for us as an organization because the particular issue that we're concerned about, we're concerned about corruption in politics and corruption in local government, There's a way to test drive whether a candidate is really going to walk the talk during their campaign. We can test in a way that, you know, say an organization is particularly concerned with the Second Amendment and and wants a candidate to vote a certain way on gun rights or maybe a candidate, uh, an organization wants a candidate to vote a certain way on on women's health care. You can ask those candidates to promise things during their campaign, but you don't know exactly how they're going to vote. On our issue, corruption, we can see during their campaign, if they follow through on these criteria, if they disclose all their their donors and they get their voters to actually buy in, but that commitment to clean government goes beyond the campaign. And we know that once we ask them and they perform during their campaign, then they are accountable to continue that commitment to clean government once they're in office too. And, and that's a really, um, we felt very fortunate when we were able to happen onto this way of test driving candidates to see if they're going to be committed or if it's just a campaign promise.
0: And I imagine it's helpful to voters because, you know, it seems like any organization or a dark money group these days could, could create you know, a great sounding group and then give some award or designation to a candidate, you know, Mothers Against Child Predators supports this candidate whomever. But with, <laughs> yeah. with Trailblazers Pack, it's like, you know, if a candidate has the seal of approval and your support, they have actually walked the walk and you don't need to ask where they stand on certain issues because they've shown where they stand through their actions, which is extremely valuable and hard to find, I think, And In many elections.
1: It's true. And not only that, if they do let their voters down at some point in the future, you can point back to something and say, hey, look, you know, office holder Z, you promised in your campaign that you were going to do this. And in fact, you disclosed all your donors during your campaign and and now you don't anymore or whatever the issue is. Uh, It gives them something to be held accountable on.
0: And so regarding that disclosure, because you're focused largely on local elections and a lot of people I think would understand why they wouldn't want uh, disclosure of their funds if they were running for Congress or Senate because they don't want to be associated with some mega donor like uh, the Koch brothers or Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg. But in local elections, you know, what is it that you think candidates are Trying to avoid the voters knowing if they're not if they're reluctant to disclose who their contributors are, what are they trying to hide?
1: That's such a good question and and the real challenge we have, I think in American politics today is that we don't pay enough attention to the office holders that we're closest to. So the people who set our property taxes and who decide where our kids are going to go to school and who decide whether A particular business is going to come into a community or is going to be zoned out. Those are the people who make day-to-day decisions that really affect every single one of us. Uh, But we don't pay enough attention to those office holders. We don't support them in the way that we probably should. And we also don't hold them accountable uh, when we need to. And that is where the corruption in American politics really starts, the amount of money that goes into local level races is significantly fewer zeros than in top tier races and congressional and Senate and presidential races. But because of that, the capacity for one business who maybe wants to get favorable zoning in a community, or one individual person who wants to swing a vote about know who knows, neighborhood housing or whether a school is going to get more funding than another school, you can really uh, put big money into small races by buying, for example, uh, a full third or half of an entire local level budget. Let's say a local level campaign costs $10,000. It is not unusual for one large interest to contribute up to half or three quarters of that individual budget. Now, we have problems with big money in politics in top tier races, but we sure don't have a situation where one individual or interest is contributing fully half of a presidential campaign's budget.
0: It sounds like you're saying, you know, even though we're used to thinking of big money in terms of, you know, Senate races, like perhaps Beto O'Rourke versus Ted Cruz and 70 million versus 50 million in terms of impact, because the budget for local campaigns is so much smaller, a donor with perhaps a few thousand dollars can make uh, a greater percentage of the campaign funds and therefore perhaps wield even greater influence over a council or a candidate than, you know, the Koch brothers can over a member of Congress.
1: Absolutely. And it and it happens all the time. Uh, Trailblazers has done a little research into some uh, local level races across New York state. And we've seen that there are uh, outside interests, corporations that want favorable zoning or want, you know, a particular business decision to be made by the town board or the county board. Uh, and and small, relatively small donations of $1,000 or less come into those town board uh, races right around the time that those zoning decisions are up. Now, you know, when, it, when a big corporation that's based in Texas suddenly decides to start contributing $500 or $1,000 to a uh, little local town board races all across upstate New York. You, you kind of wonder what's up, but very few people actually pay attention to that. Uh, but I think it, I think it can um, influence the outcome of zoning decisions that happen. That it's probably a lot cheaper for that company to have favorable zoning than to have to deal with you know whatever the financial repercussions are of the of the other zoning.
0: And it's interesting that you're mentioning the zoning issues, because when I served on my local neighborhood council in uh, Westwood near UCLA, at first it wasn't clear to me what what impact we really had, what our power truly was, what decisions we could make a difference on. But then when I think back on what we ultimately did, you could see how business owners in the community, for example, would be very invested in local decisions like well, if you own a certain type of business, you don't want a competitor coming in to the community or a block away from you. Or if you have a business, you don't want onerous requirements on the number of parking spots or things right, like that, for right. example. Is that the kind of influence or issues that you see going on in these local races?
1: It is. And another thing that we often see is uh, sometimes a decision that one would think of as a state level decision, like, um, you know, is broadband internet access going to be accessible to all the rural communities of a particular state? Or, um, you know, there's a, perhaps there's a intrastate pipeline for energy distribution that's crossing multiple states. You think of those as issues that are going to be decided upon at the state level, but very often, Home rule in municipalities can influence that. You know, a municipality can say, well, we don't want this pipeline coming through our particular town. So then the pipeline has to do a three mile jog out and around the town. If if a company can get a significant number of those little municipalities to either opt in or opt out of whatever zoning the company wants, sometimes that's more efficient than going to the state and getting a, a state level decision made legislatively.
0: Yeah. Or cost wise, if they can get the local government organizations to you know, urge the city council or the state government to go in a certain direction, as you said, it may be cheaper and more efficient for them to build that support locally than to you know, try and cozy up to the legislators at the state level. Absolutely.
1: And so what what we're asking candidates to do is, you know, it's not just small dollars because big corporations can spend small dollars too, right? that's that's where we're we're getting to with this is sometimes a, a very small campaign budget will have small contributions from a big corporation that are influential. So it's not just small dollars, it's voter dollars. And are we getting? the people who live and employ the the public servants who live in those communities, are we getting them to finance the campaign?
0: And that's ideally how it should be. You want the people who you're representing to be the ones whose voices are ultimately heard and who are most invested in your campaign. But of course, I was just looking at something nationally where uh, about 90% of outside spending you know, comes from approximately 1% of the population. And so there's such a a huge mismatch between an elected official and where their constituents are versus where their support is coming from. Right. Um, I want to get into the success of some of these candidates in the response that media or voters have had to, to what you're trying to accomplish. But before I do that, I wanted to ask, what made you start, Trailblazers Pack and get involved with this issue in the first place, not just money and politics, but a focus on more local level races? Did you have personal experience with corruption in these campaigns or had you been involved locally? What What started Trailblazers Pack for you?
1: You know, it's interesting. I I did run for office in 2016. I was unsuccessful in that race, but uh the the district I was running in, I was running for state senate in New York, and uh, not not the part of New York that people usually think of, New York City. <laughs> I was in uh, far upstate New York. It's a five county district. You have to drive for two and a half hours to get from one side of the district to another. Um, you know, it's one of the places that they joke: there's more more cows than people, uh, and. In this district, it was only 32% registered voters in, in my party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, and only 32% of folks were registered Democrats. And I don't know if you noticed, but um, 2016 was not a great year for Democrats. <laughs>
0: and we, yeah, I, I think I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. And uh, we ended up getting 45% of the vote in this 32% district. So we got 13 points over the base voter registration, which was pretty unusual it also was unusual on the Republican side. We looked really closely at Republican challengers to Democratic incumbents. And you know, because of gerrymandering, districts have gotten more and more polarized. You either have a Democratic district or a Republican district. So where Republicans were running against Democratic incumbents, they also in 2016 didn't get um, you know, much above ten points across the voter spread. You know, obviously some people won. I I didn't win, but maybe the voter spread was a little bit a little bit closer. So we took a look at that thirteen points that was so unusual in twenty sixteen, and realized that a big part of that was that I had run my campaign the way we're describing to trailblazers to do. I didn't do that out of completely honestly. I didn't do it out of any particular. Um, moral perspective on money in politics. I did it because I was running against an incumbent. And in New York State politics, incumbents are, are favored, as they are in most places. It's really hard mm-hmm. to capture the interest of, of the traditional organizations that fund politics, you know, this 1% group that you're describing. And I couldn't get their attention. I ended up outraising every other candidate in the state, but we did it through in district dollars. I think that's where that 13 points came from. We just sort of happened on to it because we didn't have another option and I wasn't going to be outraised by my opponent. Those 13 points weren't enough to to help me to win. In, you know, in 2016, 45% only got you the presidency if you were a Democrat. It didn't, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't give me a state senate seat. But it was enough for us to say, gosh, if this happened in our district. And it didn't happen in places where Republicans were running against Democrats. It didn't happen other places where Democrats were running against incumbent Republicans. Can we bring this model, this different way of voter financed elections to candidates running for office all over the place? So we decided to start with the local level campaigns, which are the ones that we think really are the most important. They're the the places that voters are closest to democracy. And so we began by financing candidates who wanted to run with this voter-centric model all across New York and Pennsylvania. We had a ton of success. We worked with 260 candidates over the 2018 cycle. We ended up investing uh, real money in 40 of those candidates, and close to 60% of them won their races, which which is really exciting for us because it shows that this this model works.
0: Well, first, uh, my condolences on losing your Senate race, because I imagine it must have been difficult to uh, sort of exceed expectations or do well above what would have been expected and still come up short. I bet that must have been very difficult. So I'm sorry to hear that. Thank
1: you. It's, you know, it's a bummer to lose. There's no doubt about it. Um, But it. It's a lot of fun to take that loss and and think about all the folks who did vote for me, and that those voices don't just go away because election day's over. That actually, as a as a person who had the gift of a lot of people's confidence in me, I felt an obligation to keep that going somehow. And so, starting Trailblazers Pack right immediately after election day um, was really gratifying.
0: Well, I'm glad that something good came out of it. I think a lot of people might be disheartened and go, oh, screw it. I'm going to go back to my business or do something else. But um, I wanted to talk about the success that you you pointed to of candidates working with Trailblazers PAC, um, having substantial success. What do you think that's attributable to primarily? Is it the relationship they're building with voters? Are they getting positive media coverage for their stance on money in politics? Um, what have you found is the reaction both in the community and I guess in terms of uh, local media entities to what you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's all of the above, David. It's its really what's old is new again. We call it front porch politics and moving politics out of the back room onto the front porch, making your your campaign a voter-centric campaign, that's going to make it a more powerful campaign. The other piece that you brought up there that media is particularly interested in this money and politics problem, I mean, that's certainly a defining piece of American politics today, the influence that That outside money, money from outside a particular district, whether it's corporate money or individual money or whoever it is, uh, the influence that that has on races inside that district. That's something that media is is very interested in talking about and local media in particular. I think that there's a real intersection between um, what we're trying to do. As Americans all across the country in taking back our, our Democratic Republic and making voters the most important voices in the room again, you can do that through local political engagement and you can also do that through local uh, journalism support. So I think that there's a real confluence there between uh, focusing on local level office holders and also uh, supporting the, the truly important role that local journalism has in our communities.
0: As I listen to you, Leslie, I can't help but notice something that I'm not used to hearing very often when people talk about politics these days, which I think is optimism. And <laughs> uh, I was I wondering if optimistic. you'd be willing- Yeah. Well, yeah, I-, I was hoping you'd share. So it sounds like maybe a lot of what you're seeing and doing at the local level. Makes you feel more hopeful about our political system or our prospects than a lot of people do, especially when they look at what's going on at the national level. Um, So, what is it that you're seeing that I think gives you a level of optimism that isn't isn't entirely common these days? I am optimistic. Uh,
1: So, I ran for office in 2016, but I have been very actively involved in political organizing for for many many years before that. And I have never seen so much engagement as we have right now. There's there's nothing worse than apathy. Apathy you you can't work with. It's it's like punching a pillow. Um, but engagement y- you can work with, and you can direct that and turn that into progress and achievement. And sometimes it gets turned into rage. And I think that there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of organizations and people out there who are trying to turn engagement into rage. I think we have to be careful of that and not allow ourselves to be co-opted by those interests that, frankly, make money off of our rage and, and off of pitting us against each other. But if we can take this engagement that is happening on the right and the left, we have the real capacity right now to... Get America back onto the track that our founders always imagined we would be on. You know, we we haven't we haven't ever done a, a superb job of being on that track, that idea that <laughs> people are created equal. But we've always been saying it, right? We've always held that as an ideal. Way back Declaration of Independence talked about how we're all equal. We haven't always done that, but we can. Because that's a core value of the American politic. And this engagement on both sides is, I think, the energy that's gonna get us there.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the equality because one of the things I talk about when I talk to members of Congress or staff members about why we support a constitutional amendment to diminish the influence of money in politics is a type of equality of opportunity for people to influence elections. Because and right um, now what you have is sort of a, a class of donors who get to speak with a megaphone, while average Americans can barely whisper in terms of influencing their representatives. And so political equality and equality of opportunity, it sounds like something that, as you said, we've always kind of spoken about or thought of as an ideal. Um, but you're seeing a level of engagement that you think can get us closer to that goal. Um, What, what would you suggest for people out there who are, you know, motivated, maybe even angry and want to become more politically active or work towards the kind of system that you think our framers envisioned, how should they get involved? What would you recommend?
1: Go find your local mayor, your local trustee, your local county commissioner, whatever it's called in your community. Go find that local person and do what you can to make sure that the kind of person that you support is getting elected and that you're continuing to support them once they're in office so they can they can make the decisions that you're hoping will be beneficial for your community. It is so great to have successes at the hyper local level, you can really see change happen fast. And I think sometimes we get demoralized when we look at what's happening at the national level. Um, you know, Trailblazers Pack is nonpartisan, we accept candidates from anywhere on the political spectrum. But, you know, as, as a general rule, I've talked to a lot of our candidates, I, I have a hard time finding any of them who really believe that um, the folks in the White House are advancing core Republican principles of individual liberty and you know, <laughs> and you know fiscal responsibility that's not what this yeah. White House stands for this White House stands for inequality and if you can make uh, a change at your local level where you're starting to address that then that feels that can feel like a real accomplishment and then you can move from there but it can feel very demoralizing to continue to rail against the inequality that's coming out of the white house.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I can tell you from, in my personal experience, as I said, I was served on my neighborhood council previously. I got involved with that neighborhood council just by showing up to a meeting, seeing what was going on. And shortly after I showed up, the neighborhood council had a couple vacant seats. Um, because there's a lot of turnover, and sometimes there's just not enough interest in the community to fill the entire neighborhood council. Somewhat mm-hmm. disappointingly, and after a few months, I, you know, was appointed to fill one of those vacant seats. I was at another neighborhood council meeting last week that had multiple vacancies. Um, so that's one way to get involved. And in addition, we're working here in Los Angeles to support. Public financing measures and uh, limiting campaign contributions from artificial entities like corporations and unions. And I can tell you that that's a very grassroots individual run effort as well. There's one individual named uh, Rob Kwan here who is really taking it upon himself just as a private citizen. He's not a part of an organization, he doesn't have a nonprofit, just as a, a single individual to lead the charge and organize. And uh, it looks like we're going to make significant progress and maybe, you know, improve the matching funds program in more, and more here within the next month or two. So I think people would be surprised by the impact they can have if they're just willing to take those initial steps and be persistent in following through. You
1: know, it's really true. Uh, the public financing model that Los Angeles has is one of the only ones in the country. I think that New York City has a a similar public financing model, but uh, folks who are paying attention to ways to get voters uh, back into the center of campaigns and to to move these outside influencers into their proper, more diminished role are really pointing to Los Angeles and to New York City for, for how this can work. Those happened because of people's local political engagement. And so if... You know, if we end up with some model for public financing at the national level or at a state level, it's going to happen because people built it at the local level first.
0: Yes, I think Seattle is another example where they have their democracy vouchers program where every voter gets, I think, four $25 vouchers they can give to a candidate of their choosing. And you're exactly right that I ultimately believe that we will see significant campaign finance reforms in the near future at the federal level. And we're working on an amendment on that front and other groups are working on other proposals. But what those reforms will ultimately look like someday comes from these local experiments and we'll try these different systems in Los Angeles or New York or Seattle and mm-hmm. see what works the best and then we'll have a test case and proven results so it's extremely important you know to have local communities be an example of how a public financing system should work because that's persuasive to the folks
1: making the decisions in the in the higher legislatures and, and completely frankly, it also gives them political cover. You know, if you want a legislator to vote a certain way on something, it's really nice if you're able to show that legislator that this particular plan already worked in a smaller community. That's, that's going to give you more credence.
0: And so in terms of the Trailblazers PAC's work, I imagine there's always some type of election going on and then people are already gearing up for 2020 campaigns at some level. But if, if people are interested in learning more about Trailblazers Pack or supporting candidates in their community who you endorse or work with or even uh, becoming a candidate and applying for an endorsement or working with Trailblazers Pack themselves... What are you working on now and what are your plans for the next election cycle or two?
1: So for us, the really important races are coming up here in 2019. We're we're not so interested in those 2020 boring races. We're really interested in the hyper-local <laughs> races that are happening all across the country in 2019. So we are working with candidates anywhere in the country who are running for county or municipal level office Uh, We've got a couple candidates we're working with in Texas. We have one in in Missouri, um, a lot in in New York and Pennsylvania. I don't think we have anybody from California yet, David, but if you can find us a candidate, we'd be delighted. Uh, We have a couple candidates we're following in Colorado. Our goal is to get as many candidates as we can elected here in 2019 so that we can continue this great track record we have of uh, putting office holders in who have taken this pledge for clean government and who aren't going to wait around for the law to change, but are instead going to do better right now. Uh, And and the more of those communities that we can have that we can point to going forward, it makes your work easier, (laughs) David, the the work of a constitutional amendment or, or some other policy change that makes this a norm across the board. And so anyone who wants to support this work, who wants to help get funds directly to candidates who are, as you say, walking the walk, they can support us uh, through trailblazerspack.com. If there's a candidate out there who wants to earn our endorsement, they can get in touch with us through our website, trailblazerspack.com. And and we're delighted to put uh, anybody running for a county or municipal level office into our mentorship program and, and help them as much as we can with their races.
0: There's sort of two different ways, in my opinion, to go after big money in politics and improve our campaign finance system. And one is, of course, through direct legislation. It's trying to pass laws that rein in campaign finance or money in politics in some way. But two is exactly what you're doing, which is supporting candidates who are walking that walk so that when those laws are proposed, they're more likely to succeed, or you have advocates in the city council or the legislature who are already supportive and willing to take the lead on those issues. So it's sort of a two-pronged attack, and it's thrilling to hear how much success you're having with with your approach, and hopefully it'll only continue to grow as the organization has grown over the years. Um, so thank you. Leslie, um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to walk us through the work of Trailblazers Pack today. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? I think it's just, you,
1: you've you said it in a nutshell that every single one of us has the power to change our communities for the better. And we got to just get in there and, and take that action. And it's a heck of a lot of fun. It's really fun.
0: As I say, that's why we're called Citizens Take Action, not Citizens Hope for the Best. Exactly. Um, so. <laughs> you said it. Absolutely. <laughs> So, Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, We'd love to have you back on in a future episode, maybe after some uh, 2019 elections. You can share your experiences and results from those. Um, But thank you once again. And just a reminder, where can people find you and Trailblazers Pack if they're interested in learning more?
1: At trailblazerspack.com. And if you're a candidate and you'd like to get into our mentorship and and start earning the possibility of some of our funding, uh, click on there. Do you want to run for office and get your information to us and we'll do what we can to help you out.
0: Okay. well, you heard it and take action and uh, learn more about Trailblazers Pack if you're interested in supporting the cause, which we hope that you are. Thank you to Leslie Danks-Burke for joining me, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. Until next time, I'm David Edward Burke.